influence. It's the lifeblood of the scholar. In practice, this amounts to the accrual of references to our peer-reviewed articles and invited talks at conferences. For public intellectuals, many who are my personal heroes, influence is accomplished by book sales, public debates, television and media appearances, and so on. And now, in just the past few years, long-form podcasts are a great way to get intellectual contributions out in the world. With luck, I will eventually be a part of the conversation in the larger public arena. At the same time that we witness a degradation of the mainstream media, a reduction in the authority of television and radio broadcasts, and a proliferation of bullshit and conspiracy theories online, we also see more and more excellent conversations in the podcast space. Sam Harris is Making Sense, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, The Portal with Eric Weinstein, Lex Friedman, The Joe Rogan Experience. I wonder if we are living through the growing pains of a major revolution in intellectual communication. That's the optimistic side. The other side is the fractionation of our culture and the foundering of our institutions. My aspiration with this podcast, my research, the publication of my ideas, is to have some influence, for my thoughts to matter. Most importantly, I aspire to have ideas that are worthy of mattering, to pursue truth productively and creatively, why else become a scholar? Something that one discovers in the practice of meditation is that new realizations about conscious experience are very close to the surface. They are subtle. At least for me, I find that the little insights which come about in meditation do not come from a new depth of understanding, but rather a kind of recognition of what is already right in front of you. One such recognition is that the field of darkness that occurs when the eyes are closed and you focus in front of you is qualitatively different than the absence of sight. You actually see a field of darkness. It is not a solid block of smooth blackness, rather there is a kind of digital quality with a buzz of little points and waves that occur and so on. But this isn't my point. My point could be made even if the field of darkness when the eyes are closed were a solid block of smooth blackness. You are seeing that blackness. It has quality. Something else occurs when you focus elsewhere, somewhere other than vision, or when you become lost in thought. Often the field of darkness is not present. The focus, the thinking, or whatever, replaces in the mind the field of darkness. Perhaps there is mental imagery, such as if you are remembering something that has visual characteristics. Perhaps there is a kind of visualization of the body, which I often notice when I am focusing on the peripheral sensations. Imagine you are sitting quietly, engaged in a guided meditation. The guide instructs you to close your eyes and look into the field of darkness. Focus on the visual field and follow the breath. Now suppose, as often occurs in meditation, that you forget what you are doing and drift into some train of thought. The guide is quiet for a time, allowing you to meditate. Then he suddenly comes back and says, Now focus on the visual field. Notice the darkness in front of you, and you drop your train of thought and see again the field of darkness. This little example shows that your attention can seem to abandon the visual field altogether for a time and then return to it. And obviously the stimulation or lack of stimulation on the retinas has continued all along. So there is a difference between experiencing a visual field of darkness and experiencing no visual field at all. In fact, I have just devised an experiment that you can try at home that proves the distinction. Close your eyes and notice that you can see a visual field of darkness. No surprise here. Now open your eyes and notice that you see a colorful visual field. 
Again, no surprise. Now close one eye. What do you see? You see the colorful visual field covering all that the open eye can see, and nothing else. Try to see the darkness in your closed eye. Try to see the back of your closed eyelid. You cannot. You only see what is happening in your open eye, no field of darkness. You might expect that you would see half colorful field and half darkness, but you do not. If your right eye is open and your left eye is closed, you see nothing with the left eye. This is the case even though what is happening in your left retina is the same whether it is closed alone or closed along with the other eye. Since closing both eyes reveals a field of darkness, and only one eye closed shows nothing at all, you should now be able to comprehend from your own experience the distinction I am making between seeing darkness and seeing nothing. With this distinction in mind, perhaps we can begin to imagine what it would be like to have a neglect syndrome. Attentional mechanisms may have something to do with neurological cases of unilateral neglect. I first became aware of such cases about 20 years ago when I first read Oliver Sacks' popular book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Unilateral neglect occurs with severe damage to one cerebral hemisphere of the brain. Sacks describes a woman in her 60s who had suffered a stroke affecting the right hemisphere. He writes, quote, she sometimes complains to the nurses that they have not put dessert or coffee on her tray. When they say, but Mrs. S., it is right there on the left, she seems not to understand what they say and does not look to the left. If her head is gently turned so that the, the, the dessert comes into sight in the preserved right half of her visual field, she says, oh, there it is. It wasn't there before. She has totally lost the idea of left with regard to both the world and her own body. Sometimes she complains that her portions are too small, but this is because she only eats from the right half of the plate. It does not occur to her that it has a left half as well. Sometimes she will put on lipstick and make up the right half of her face, leaving the left half completely neglected. It is almost impossible to treat these things because her attention cannot be drawn to them and she has no conception that they are wrong." Unquote. This case goes well beyond the blindness for one half of the visual field that I've described previously in patients with lesions of the primary visual cortex. Mrs. S. apparently has lost the very concept of the left side of space, and this even extends to the left side of her body. Sachs writes, quote, Especially distressing to her was the derision which greeted her when she appeared only half made up. The left side of her face absurdly void of lipstick and rouge. I look in the mirror, she said, and do all that I see. Would it be possible, we wondered, for her to have a mirror such that she would see the left side of her face on the right? That is, as someone else facing her would see her. We tried a video system with camera and monitor facing her, and the results were startling and bizarre. For now, using the video screen as a mirror, she did see the left side of her face to her right, an experience confounding even to a normal person, as anyone knows who has tried to shave using a video screen, and doubly confounding, uncanny for her, because the left side of her face and body, which she now saw, had no feeling, no existence for her, in consequence of her stroke. Take it away, she cried in distress and bewilderment, so we did not explore the matter further." Unquote. As of the writing of his book, From Neuropsychology to Mental Structure, in 1988, Tim Shallis favored the theory that neglect is a pathology of attention rather than spatial representation. He wrote, quote, Of the disorders that arise from neurological disease that relate to attention, much the best known is unilateral neglect. It can take many forms, 
but some of its manifestations are among the most dramatic of all neurological disorders. The patient may, for instance, detect a target number on one side of a small array of numbers as rapidly as a normal subject, but fail completely for a minute or more if it has moved only a few inches to the neglected side, typically the left. When drawing, he or she may draw only the right side of objects. When reading, he or she may ignore or misread the beginnings of words. Such patients can even deny that a left limb, say, a paralyzed arm, is theirs." Unquote. With regard to reading with neglect, Shallis discusses a condition known as neglect dyslexia. He writes, quote, To read text, it is necessary that the attentional focus be limited to each word in turn. Otherwise, reading would be continually derailed by the occurrence of migration errors, the type of error that occurs in attentional dyslexia. Presumably, the visual spatial attentional control system utilizes the primitive pattern of words and spaces on a page to determine the positioning and focusing of its zoom lens for each word. What would happen if the focus, as determined by the visual spatial control system, and the area of visual space from which information is present do not match? Attentional dyslexia has been given as one example of such a mismatch. Another dyslexic syndrome may be ex explicable in a related fashion. This is neglect dyslexia, in which the patient makes visual errors that consistently affect only one end of a word. In the more common form, the errors affect only the beginnings of words." Unquote. It is important to note that the words being presented to these patients are being shown to an intact visual field. The whole word is impinging on the retina, but the patient only sees the latter end. The first letter or two is missing. I would prove this by adding a prefix to a word. I'm not sure if researchers have tried this, but they probably have. Present the word view, V-I-E-W, and the patient might read only the E-W, U. Now, add the letters R-E to the beginning of the word to make review. The patient should now read view. This would mean that looking at something whole reveals to the consciousness of such a patient only that which corresponds to its right half or so, the left side of the plate, or a painting, or the body, does not appear in consciousness at all, just like the experiment we did with one eye closed, something to the right, and nothing to the left. In the quest for consciousness, Christoph Koch writes, quote, Subjectively, the neglect patient is not conscious of objects toward his left side. This region, similar to the space behind your head, is not gray or dark. It is simply not consciously represented. In this regard, spatial neglect is quite different from hemianopia the total blindness in one field that occurs after the loss of V1. A hemianopic patient is aware of this loss and learns to compensate by turning his eyes and head, quite unlike a neglect patient. Paradoxically, therefore, a hemianopic patient experiences a more absolute deficit, but fares better than a person with neglect. Such a patient might be able to deduce the loss indirectly, but this kind of rational conclusion has no lasting impact on behavior. A neurologist can help the patient discover that the hand hanging down from his shoulder is actually his and not somebody else's. But the insight is soon lost amid the overwhelming inaccessibility of sensory evidence that this arm moving about is actually mine." Unquote. If the cortical damage that results in unilateral neglect involves a disconnection from attention, I can hypothesize within the framework of the temporally integrated causality landscape, TICL, what might be going on. I have suggested that attention is a means of amplifying a targeted subsystem. Remember, according to the TICL, a subsystem is a set of neuronal elements across which there is a degree of temporally integrated causality that rises above that which occurs across the whole system. 
This is what distinguishes it from background noise, from nothingness. This is what gives the subsystemic activity meaning from the point of view of the system. Disconnection of parietal networks from attention would mean that feedback from a frontal attention mechanism is unable to work on those areas of the cortical maps that are found there. With no capacity to amplify and integrate targets in those cortical regions, it might prevent them from becoming subsystems, so they cannot be experienced by the system. Their signal is lost in the noise. What if there is bilateral damage resulting in neglect for both sides? Koch discusses this rare situation here. He writes, quote, if parietal regions were critical for visual experiences, the loss of both left and right lobes should give rise to profound neglect throughout the entire field of view, a total loss of vision. This is not the case, however. Patients with a rare condition known as Balance syndrome have bilateral parietal lesions. The hallmark of this condition is a persistent fixation onto a single object. That's all they see. Everything else is neglected. They can identify and describe the object at their focus, but not where it is with regard to anything else. These patients are lost in a universe devoid of any discernible spatial structure, a space that contains only what is inside the spotlight of attention." Unquote. This is a fascinating and counterintuitive condition. Clearly, attention still works. Here it would seem that only with the amplification of attention can a visual subsystem be produced. There is nothing on the visual landscape except that one subsystem, and its meaning is understood in isolation. There are no nested subsystems to compare its size, location, or motion against. That's really weird. It is self-evident that consciousness is limited. What does it mean to know something, to have a piece of knowledge? Do you have it now, in your consciousness? You know a lot of things, the meanings of words, trivial facts, the identity of famous people, what they look like, what they are known for. You know all kinds of information relevant to your career, your habits, your hobbies and interests. You know the names of TV shows, the lyrics to songs, the dates of important holidays and birthdays. All of these learned associations captured in semantic memory and episodic memory are embedded in your neuronal networks and synaptic arrangements. But right now, in this moment, you are only accessing a tiny fraction of this information. That is all that is conscious, and in that sense, all that exists right now. It is as if the brain is staffed by a team of assistants who pull the relevant files and place them on your desk, just in time for you to use them. As far as consciousness is concerned, thoughts just appear. Sometimes they are traces of a memory for some episode. Sometimes they are fantasies or wishes. Sometimes they are facts that you once learned, or fragments of songs, scenes from movies, references to references. Attention feels to me like a willful process, just like voluntary movement. Perceptions in vision or hearing, for example, provide possibilities for the focus of attention. A kind of thoughtscape of almost thoughts is floating about the edges of awareness, like peripheral vision. Any one of them can become a focus of attention. And this process, by a mysterious mechanism, though little more mysterious than that of voluntary movement, enhances the object of our next preferred focus. We take note of some particular item or idea, read it out in the mind's voice. All else, all that knowledge and memory that is not floating around our subjective periphery, is as nothing. In neglect, whether unilateral or otherwise, it would seem that there are concepts and forms that are simply out of reach of attention. By attending, perhaps we strengthen associations in the manner that rehearsal strengthens learning. Unable to attend because damage has resulted in a violent disconnection, perhaps these associations quickly deteriorate. 
one can lose even the peripheral experience of entire spatial domains. What is it like to be dead? A naive suggestion is that all is darkness. But we know this cannot be the case. Darkness is something. And I hope to have convinced you today that this is something altogether distinct from nothing. According to the TICL, there are two sides to the substrate of consciousness. There is the system as a whole, a massive functionally integrated constituency of the thalamocortex, and secondly, there are the subsystems within it. The large system has some non-zero level of temporally integrated causality across all of the elements. Each subsystem is a set of elements which collectively exhibit a higher level of temporally integrated causality. All the other connections of elements in all their potential combinations do not make up subsystems. They are part of the system, but indistinguishable from it. They are unknown to us. Suppose there are no subsystems, then there is nothing to experience. Suppose there is no integrated system, then there is no point of view. Death is nothing. No point of view and nothing to view anyway. And what is the alternative? The point of view disembodied? The soul detached? Being without anything to be? Mm -hmm.